Hello, and thank you for joining us for Grasping Scripture. Today we're in Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, and we're in the second chapter. It promises to be a fun day. We're going to get into some interesting topics that, well, at least in recent church history, have been strong areas of debate. So I kind of look forward to this. It's going to be interesting. I will share with you my best understanding of the scholarship around Scripture about uh, its background and, and some of what it may be speaking to, and I will also share with you my viewpoint, my take on what is happening, all in the hopes that you will have a better grasp of Scripture. So, let's prepare our hearts as we prepare our minds to look at the second chapter of First Timothy. Join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to study your word, Lord, we ask that you would give us discernment and wisdom. As we begin to delve into what are seemingly some challenging passages, help us to understand. Help us to not respond based on our emotion or our sensibilities, but instead to listen for your voice, to let your word speak to us instead of just listening for what we want to hear. Father, I admit that all too often I find myself looking for confirmation of my own attitudes instead of allowing you to speak. And Lord, I confess that to you as sin. And I turn from it and I ask that you would help me and all of us as we study these passages to hear your voice to have your spirit challenge where we are the attitudes that we hold that we might reach that point of brokenness and repentance and our lives would reflect you and you alone lord we thank you for your word and the blessing that it is to us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, just a quick matter of review or overview, if you will, for this letter. Timothy is at the church at Ephesus. He's leading that as Paul is back at this point, uh, probably in Macedonia. This is, is prior to his... Uh, last arrest and imprisonment there in Rome before his execution. And he's writing these words to encourage Timothy, but also to confront some false teaching in the church. And the form of this letter is not just a personal letter. It is written in a specific form for a, a first century Greco-Roman letter from an authority figure to their delegate. And it was designed to publicly be read so that the person who was a delegate for the authority figure would have a clear understanding of what their job was, but also so that the congregation listening or all the people listening to the reading of that would also know, in this case, what Timothy's job was, what his charge was from Paul, but also what that charge meant to them. So they couldn't complain, oh, Timothy's doing that because he doesn't like us doing... No, 
it was very clear when Timothy did something, he was carrying out the directive given to him by Paul. So it's like Paul's here doing this. And it, it basically gave everybody a heads up. It provided accountability. Timothy was publicly accountable to the mandates that Paul had given him in this letter, but the congregation was also accountable because they had been informed. None of this was news to them after they'd heard this letter. So it's an interesting dynamic going on, but that sets the stage for where we are. And now we get into 2 Timothy. Now we've got false teachers in the church that seem to be focusing more on Judaism uh, than Christianity, but kind of a hybrid thing. They want to bring in the law, but there's, there's also some other false teachings happening, much like we have seen in other letters of Paul. Uh, particularly back to Thessalonica, there's both a Jewish influence and a pagan influence. And we may see some of that pagan influence happening here. Uh, one of the huge pagan temples there in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. And, you know, it's, that influences things. There was lots of, of Greek god and goddess worship. And, well, well, we'll unpack that as we get a little further into this. All right, well, let's dig into this chapter, shall we? In chapter 2, Paul picks up this way. He says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Now, it's interesting that Paul would encourage them to do this. Uh, much of what he's encouraging seems to be in contrast to what the false teachers were teaching. And it may very well be that the false teachers were telling them not to pray for certain individuals, that, that maybe only certain ones were worthy of being prayed for, of, of being interceded for. And here Paul is making it clear, and this is for the church at Ephesus, it's for Timothy, it's for us today, that we are urged to pray for all people, everybody, and that we should ask God to help them. I think all too often when we're in conflict with people or we don't like certain people, that our tendency is to pray that God would fix them or straighten them out or eliminate them, whatever. Instead, what God calls us to, and this one verse is a profound reminder of it, God calls us to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf, and to give thanks for them. Can you imagine in the life of a believer what a difference in attitude that will bring about? That if there's someone you're having trouble with or, or conflict with or your personalities just don't mesh or whatever, and you spent your time genuinely praying for that individual? interceding for that inter that individual and giving thanks for them? Do you think that would change your attitude and outlook? I guarantee it will. So some powerful words there. Not easy words, but powerful words. Going on, he says, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Now, we're supposed to pray for the authorities. 
I, you depending on who's in office and who you align with, you may feel you have a hard time praying for those in authority. God doesn't give you the option. As his follower, as a believer in Christ, we are commanded to pray for those in authority because they're in authority because God put them there for his purpose. So let's pray for them, but not just because it's what we're supposed to do. He goes on. He says, pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. But there's a why to it. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Now, he's not saying that we live lives that just blend in and you can't tell us from the rest of society. We're supposed to stand out. The glory of the gospel is supposed to be evident in our lives. When he talks about marked by godliness and dignity, that is living a life of obedience to Christ that lives out the, the commands of Christ and the evidence of his presence, those, those spiritual fruit bearing forth in our lives. So it's, it's not we're just fading into the background and nobody notices us, but it's when they do notice us, they see the gospel. But see these authorities, these kings that we're praying for, that we might live these peaceful and quiet lives, these are the people that could bring persecution on the church. Or they're the people that can bring protection on the church, depending on where their heart is and how they choose to approach things. So it's important. And whether you agree with the person in office or not, lift them in prayer. Don't just pray about them. Pray for them. And do so genuinely. And seek to live those peaceful, quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. He goes on, he says, there is good, or excuse me, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So what does God desire? He desires for everybody to be saved and everyone to understand the truth. And our being obedient to him and praying in this way pleases him. And shouldn't we want to please our God and Savior? Verse 5. And well, let me handle verse 5 and following as kind of a separate piece here. In verse 5, what we have is quite possibly a quote from an early Christian creed or hymn that was used in the church, uh, something that was, that was memorized, that was commonly said in this form to remind people of these doctrinal truths about Christ. It seems to have that form, and there are several little passages of Scripture like this throughout Timothy and even over into his letters to Titus that have the same feel to it. And you get the sense he's quoting something, uh, maybe even quoting something they would have been familiar with. And I'm not just saying that. That's what scholars say about these passages. And, and there is that certain sense to them. Well, here in verse five, he says, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. 
and I have been chosen as a preacher and an apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling the truth. So what's he saying? Well, I think really verse 5 and 6 are the core of it. And that is this. There is only one God. That echoes the Shema. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one. It echoes that. There is only one God, one mediator, who can reconcile God and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. Wait, there's only one God, and he is mediator. And he's the only one that can reconcile God and man. And he's God. And who is he? The man, Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. What's he saying? He's saying that Christ is fully God and fully human. That's kind of creedal. Uh, that's kind of foundational doctrine in early church life. And, by the way, today as well. Uh, if you're in a church that doesn't acknowledge that, that Christ is God, then... Uh, I would recommend get yourself a good Bible and find a better church. Um, it's just one of those foundational doctrinal truths. And here he says it so beautifully. What is it that reconciles us to God, humanity to God? Christ, one mediator, only one go-between. There's not another individual. There isn't some other level of spiritual being. It's not saints that intercede for us. It's not angelic creatures. It's not anything else. It is Christ and Christ alone reconciling us to God. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, that's, that's everybody, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave the world at just the right time. And then in verse 7, his personal note, and I've been given I've been chosen as a preacher and an apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. That is a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture, verses 5 and 6 there. A beautiful summation of the gospel, that reconciling between sinful humanity and a holy God, and the one that accomplished that reconciling, Christ purchasing us by giving his life. So in those few verses, he gives us this foundation for prayer, how we should be praying for everyone, how we should be praying for leaders, how we should be praying rooted in this idea that there is one mediator, Christ. Now he goes on in verse 8 and says, in every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And he's speaking specifically there of men, gender specific. Um, why does he say this? He's saying, look, guys, 
I want you to be honest and open before God. When you come together to worship, you need to be lifting your hands and and not the way we do it today, okay? First century worship involved showing there was nothing between you and God. Raised, extended hands open up to heaven. It is an expression of openness before God. He's saying, that's how he wants you to pray. That's how he wants you to worship God and do it free from anger and free from controversy, not just in the the physical expression of there's nothing between me and God, but truly get what's between you and God out of the way. Come before God and worship him wholly, as in completely everything you are and everything you have, but also in a state of holiness. Come before God and worship him. In every place I worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And then in nine, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Now, that first part he was expressing to men, saying, look, you need to be open and honest before God. There needs to be nothing between you. So deal with your what? Attitudes. Guys, it's our attitudes that get in the way. It is our anger and our controversy. It is the conflict. It is that it may be a rage to order or it may just be rage. We need to get a lid on it. We need to confess it. We need to repent of it. We need to be open and honest before God. We need to be able and willing to pray for everyone, not just about or against the people we don't like. And so Paul's cutting to the quick of it. But then he shifts focus a little bit and he starts talking to the ladies. And he says, hey, you know, there's an issue here. What is it? Much like the guys have an attitude problem. He's basically addressing that the women are having that same problem. It just looks different. I want women to be modest in their appearance. Well, that definitely implies they're being immodest. Now, what does that mean? That they're inappropriately dressed, that there's not enough covered, whatever. Maybe, but as he continues talking, you get the idea that it's more about how they're dressed and the why behind it. He says they should wear decent and appropriate clothing. Well, decent implies, yeah, be covered, okay? But he said, and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. And you may go, okay, does this mean we're not supposed to dress up for church? Because, you know, growing up, they always told us Sunday best, and we had to dress well. And In that first century world, for a woman to have her hair elaborately fixed into a particular style uh, meant that she was seeking to be alluring. Now, what's the problem with that? 
Because if you're there to worship it, God, worship God, then you can't be there to say, "Hey, look at me." And even worse yet, you absolutely shouldn't be there to say, "Hey, desire me." Because you should be there to desire God. And as we come together to worship, we should all be there to encourage each other to desire God. And if the way we are preparing ourselves focuses elsewhere, then we have a problem on where we're focusing. And Paul's just pointing out, hey, ladies, this can be an issue. Don't do this. Don't fall into that trap. But he goes on and he talks about wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. That's not just about adornment. These were icons of wealth. Women of wealth and means prepared themselves this way with the the adornment of jewelry and expensive clothing. Not so much to entice attention or to seduce, if you will, but to proclaim, I have arrived, you know, to, to shout out, I am wealthy, give me attention. And that's off base too. Because again, as we come together to worship, where is our attention to be focused? On God. And if, as it tends to be for guys, their attitude is the problem, then they need to work on their attitude and come to worship without that in the way. For ladies, at least in Ephesus in the first century, the issue seemed to be more um, desiring to be desired or wanting to put forth this image of wealth and importance. And again, still off focus. And Paul's saying, get that straight. That's not how you come to worship. There's one mediator between God and humanity, and you're there to worship him. So come together in that way for that purpose. Let the focus be the focus and quit trying to make it about something else. And I know people read these passages and they get bent out of shape and, oh, it's telling women they can't be women. It's telling, you know, blah, blah. No, it's not. It's saying, if you're coming to worship God, come worship God. But don't come trying to become someone else's idol of worship, claiming you're coming to worship God. And really, if we're going to show up and we're going to seek to draw attention away from God and towards us, are we not trying ourselves to become an idol? And that's never okay. So in your context, in your life, whatever it is that would fit that category, it's time to wrestle with it. It's time to overcome it. And you can focus on the Lord. Now, as we pick up looking at verse 11, we have to be mindful of our context. Paul is talking to Timothy and also to the congregation. Remember, the letters read to Timothy about what he should do, but is also to inform the congregation of what the expectation on Timothy to deal with them is. 
Paul has just finished, or not really finished, he's in the middle of, talking about our prayer and worship when we come together corporately to worship God. How the guys need to have their attitude right. Men, anger and controversy should not be part of your persona, your your person, your attitude, your heart, as you come in to worship the Lord. You should be able to do it lifting open hands to God. Nothing between you and him. Not carrying your anger and controversy with you. It gets in the way. Also for the ladies, your adornment and the way you express your attitude through your attire should not be something that distracts from worship. It should not be your focus in worship, but instead, just like the guys, you should be able to worship God with nothing between you and him. Not a desire for attention or not a proclamation of of status or, or any of those things that may have been at work there. So the overall point is we need to come before God without distraction and without um, without having a diluted focus, if you will. We need to be focused on God in worship. So as we move into verse 11 and the verses that follow, it's still dealing with the same subject. And we have this verse that says, women should learn quietly and submissively. Well, that would have been entirely appropriate in the context of that first century world in the life of the church where the the women worshiped on one side of the room and the men on the other. If the women were, were yelling out questions and whatnot, which would have been to their husbands on the other side of the room, you could see where that might be a little distracting during worship, may draw a little attention to them instead of the proclamation of God's word, which they were there to hear. There were lots of dynamics going on. Some of it may have been linked to the first century culture. Some of it may have been linked to just the uh, church life and the way it was done at that point in time. Although some of these things, and I would dare say the principles underlying all of these things, still hold true today. Isn't it kind of disruptive if somebody starts yelling out during a service? Yeah, probably. You know, if your pastor is making a point in a, in a message, proclaiming God's word, seeking to, to convey the gospel to the lost, if you're sitting there in the pew with your cell phone out, Googling some illustration he used or something, and you want to stand up and go, hey, you said in the illustration that kid was 12 and he was 10 according to Google. And where's the focus on attention there? I mean, yeah, your pastor needs to do due diligence and get it right. We try to, but I'll let you in on a hint. We pastors are, in fact, some of you don't think so, but we are, in fact, human. And we occasionally mess up. And we try to correct that. And we appreciate you holding us accountable in love. All right. But it gets distracting. There are things that just are not appropriate for corporate worship. And we have the deficit in looking at these verses as well, is we don't know what these false teachers were teaching. But the indication seems to be they were teaching an inappropriate role for women in the life of the church, at least at that point in time, if if not period, in such a way that the outside world looking in would not be seeing Jesus, but they would be distracted by all the other stuff going on. 
and the people inside the church worshiping Christ would have their attention and their focus diverted. That is what this whole section of Scripture is addressing. So we have to take that into account. Women should learn quietly and submissively. Again, if they were divided in worship, then that could be an issue. He says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. What's he mean by that? Well, that would have been appropriate for the day. If any non-believer were to see the Christians worshiping and see the women in positions of authority and teaching the men, understand that would look either just like the Temple of Artemis, pagan worship, or would look like, or and, would look like something contrary to the structure of society. Now, are there times Christianity needs to stand against societal norms? Yes. I believe Christianity should fundamentally be countercultural because we live in a lost and fallen world and we're supposed to live as citizens of the kingdom. So there ought to be a distinction there, but we should not live in such a way that we are driving people who are seeking God away. We can be odious to this world and not because of the gospel, just because of our behavior and our attitudes. That is not acceptable. We should not. The gospel can bring offense. It's not our job to bring offense. If we are putting obstacles in the way of the lost coming to Christ, we need to get it straight. And there definitely seems to be, as taught by these false teachers in this context, an attitude that was taking hold in the church at Ephesus that was doing just that. It was being offensive to the world around them when it wasn't the gospel bringing offense. It was the attitudes and actions of the people bringing offense. And Paul makes argument for um, women not teaching men or having authority over them, and he roots it in Genesis. In verse 13, he says, For God made Adam first, and afterwards he made Eve. Now, what's the significance there? Well, okay, Adam came first. But you notice, prior to the fall, uh, there was no real distinction there between Adam and Eve. Okay, obviously there was Adam and there was Eve. But there is no indication in God's word of a hierarchy distinction between Adam and Eve. She was made from his rib instead of made from the dirt. Yes, but they were together. Then we get to the fall. For God made Adam first, afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Now, by exclusion here, he is not letting Adam off the hook. The serpent deceived Eve, and she ate the fruit. But then what happened? She handed it to Adam, said, here, eat this, and what did he do? He ate it. Now, Whether that was an act of solidarity with Eve, sheer stupidity, yeah, I don't know. But Adam chose to eat that fruit. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And there's plenty of penalty. Read, mm, let's see, everything else in Scripture from that point forward, and you'll understand what the penalty for that was. But Paul's making the point, hey, the one that was deceived by the serpent was Eve. Now that almost makes it worse because Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing when he ate the fruit. 
Eve at least bought the lie. And Paul says, look, if that's the case, or not if that's the case, he's saying, look, that is the case. Um, his take is that, that women may be more prone to being deceived because we go back to Adam and Eve. So that's the argument he's using there in verse 14. And he goes on, but women will be saved through childbearing assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Wow, verse 15. There have been so many discussions over the centuries as to what verse 15 means. And to kind of clear the air on it, I went back. I have a set of commentaries, the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. Basically, the the most recent writings in that commentary series are from 600 AD. So leaves out much of the modern discussion on it and goes back to, hey, what does this say? What does it mean? What does everyone understand it to mean? And in a nutshell, I would say that verse 15, based on what I've read there and based on what I understand from Scripture, is that the women will be saved through childbearing is a reference, an allusion, if you will, to the coming of the Savior. That again, referring to Eve, Adam and Eve, that that it is from woman a child will be born who will be Savior, Redeemer, the Christ. And so there's this pointing towards the future, and of course this isn't the future for Paul and Timothy. They're looking at it going, yeah, and, and that's going to be Christ. But also that there is a role in this life, and even in the first century world, it was largely incumbent upon the women of the household to spiritually shape the children of the household. In that day and age, if you were in a Jewish home, you were Jewish because your mother was Jewish, not your father. And it was the mothers who would instill the basic rudiments of faith in God in their children before that child went to synagogue school to have their education more formalized and fleshed out. And so that becomes an issue. And Paul says, women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty with a right attitude. And again, I would say that childbearing is probably a reference to the coming of the Christ, but is also an encouragement to believing women to live out their faith in their families. Now, you don't have to agree with all of that, but you do have to deal with it because it's in God's word. How will we deal with God's word? How will it shape us? So I'm sure as we come to the end of this chapter, I have probably not made anybody happy with my answers to things. I've just tried to give you a little bit of background and help you understand there are different views on these verses. And I don't think these verses are a salvation issue. So if our views don't mesh, it's okay. But they are issues that we need to struggle with. They're part of God's word. And I've shared you shared with you what my take on it is. Uh, in fact, just to be clear, even my take on the not letting women have authority over men in the life of the church, that um, 
the way I understand that, and it falls in line with basic Southern Baptist doctrine on it, is that that means that God has called the the ultimate human authority in the church, the the senior pastor position in the life of the church. Uh, he has called men to that role. It doesn't mean women don't minister in the church. It doesn't mean they can't have other pastoral roles in the church, but that it's not going to be senior pastor. That's my understanding on it right now. And so just, just to let you know where I'm coming from. But in all of these, we need to approach them with grace. Years ago, a man who was uh, serving as a, a mentor for me as I was beginning in the ministry, shared with me a quote that he attributed to the Moravians. And I know it goes back to, I think, St. Francis or somebody, but um, the quote goes something along these lines. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Not a bad reminder. We got to be together in the essentials. There's one mediator between God and man, Christ. The non-essentials, let's give some leeway. And no matter what we're dealing with, we need to act in love towards one another. Let that be a challenge to you as you seek to live out God's word where you're at and in what you're doing. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts to you, as we have studied your word and wrestled with it, and, and Father, admittedly, we'll probably continue to wrestle with it. Lord, we are mindful that you are still God, that you have redeemed us and you have called us to serve you in your kingdom. And we thank you. Now help us when we come together to worship. Help us to do it in a way that truly glorifies you. Shine your light into our lives, showing us those things that we need to clear out of the way so that we can stand open-handed and worship you together instead of making it about ourselves. Help us to make it about you, that we would truly worship you. And Father, I know that when we truly worship you, there is something magnetic about that, that even the lost can see that worship and say, there is something there, and I want to know what it is. Help us to have that kind of worship because it glorifies you and because it proclaims you to this lost and broken world. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.